I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. This week, an update on the We're With You concert for Ukraine. New Zealanders get the chance to ensure Braille is always capitalised. Significant progress to report with Uber and memories of radio station launches. All this and more. Mosen at Large Podcast. Welcome back to another edition. If it's your first, what a special welcome to you. I have a lot of things to update you on today. So let's get right into it and first of all talk about the We're With You concert for Ukraine. This is happening on the 16th of April in the North American time zone at least at 2pm Eastern, 7pm in the UK. If you're in my part of the world, that is Easter Sunday, the 17th of April, 6am bright and early in New Zealand, even earlier in Eastern Australia at 4am. How long will it go for? Well, we don't know at this stage, but what we do know is we are getting a wonderful number of contributions coming. So it promises to be quite a lengthy but high quality event. First of all, let's talk about the most important thing, making sure that the money goes to the people who need it most. And I'm very pleased to be able to say that we've got some partnerships that are really making a difference to the project and can give you some confidence that money is in the correct hands. I'm grateful to Mark Riccobono and the team at the National Federation of the Blind in the United States. When they heard about this concert, they reached out to us and they said, we've been looking for ways to help the blind people of Ukraine. This seems like a great way to do it. We're glad to lend our assistance and support. And they have provided a lot of practical support to us. We appreciate that very much. We also thank Mark Workman, the executive director of the World Blind Union and his team, And what we can tell you is that the funds raised for the We're With You event will go to the World Blind Union's Unity Fund. You can find out more about the Unity Fund on the World Blind Union's website. We'll also make sure we put that link on our We're With You page. You can learn about where the money is going, the fact that the World Blind Union is working closely with organizations in the area. So the World Blind Union obviously has a global reach and they're making sure that organizations who are providing practical assistance, both to blind people who remain in Ukraine and to those who are refugees. I'm very pleased to say also that some commercial organizations are getting behind the Where With You event and sponsoring it, because let's not forget the purpose of this is to raise as much money for those who need it in Ukraine or who have fled from Ukraine as possible. So we're going to have some fun while we also do some good. We have a sponsorship tier system in place, and this is appealing to organizations who have a philanthropic heart, who want to find ways to help blind Ukrainians and have confidence that the money is going to credible sources. Now, there are various benefits that you can gain from being a part of this sponsorship program. For a start, you can donate to NFB, who will pass on all of the funds to the World Blind Union, and that may be appropriate If you are a part of a United States organization and you want to take advantage of the tax deductibility that can come from donating to a U.S. organization such as NFB, you can do that. But we have practical ways of saying thank you and acknowledging your sponsorship on the Where With You concert. And of course, because we're trying to get the money in, what you get depends on how much you give. And so it ranges everywhere from having a wee sponsorship message broadcast throughout the Wear With You concert, all the way through to a quick discussion on the concert itself. 
which will be listened to by many blind people from around the world. But the most important thing, of course, is that this is a great cause, and we want corporates to generously open up their wallets and give till it hurts and help the people of Ukraine. All right, all right. So head on over to the Where With You page for all sorts of information about the event. It is being updated regularly. And our partners are adding pages about the event all the time. I know that NFB has one. I'm sure that some of our broadcast partners have them by now. And I've been a part of several interviews now with our broadcast partners too. So mushroomfm.com slash we're with you. And let me just say a couple of things about the name of the event and the hashtag. We've had this we're with you page up for a wee while now. And because of that, I'm not going to change the URL. So it's just we're with you all joined together, spelt the way that you would expect. But the official name for the event is now we're with you with a capital U to signify that we're with Ukraine. If you want to tweet or otherwise post on social media about this event, it's great for us to keep all the contributions together, particularly on the day of the concert when although we can't gather together in some sort of big stadium, which would be just so cool to bring all the blind people and our allies around the place who want to be a part of this event and put them in a big stadium, we can use a hashtag. And that hashtag is blind with you. And that's the letter U. So blind with and a capital U all joined together. And if you want to ask questions or tweet about the event, then just use that hashtag in your tweet, in your post, and it will keep them all together. If you are a musician and you haven't got your contribution in yet, we are absolutely being deluged with them, but that's okay. We will do our best to accommodate as many as possible. Do check out that page at mushroomfm.com slash we're with you and find out all about how to contribute. This is quite a massive event from a logistical point of view. I want to thank everybody who is helping, who's coming together for this amazing cause. And I know that we're going to make a difference on the 16th of April. Some comments coming in on the Where With You events. Let's hand over to Roy Nash for the first one. Yesterday, my wife and I were discussing how we might make a contribution to the people in Ukraine. And I listened to your podcast, Jonathan and you have provided the answer. You are providing a vehicle that we might make a meaningful contribution and know that it will go to the people who need it. And I'm deeply grateful to you and all the other people who are making this possible. I used to play guitar and sing folk music, did it all my life. Since my stroke, I don't play the guitar anymore. But I will be making a sizable financial contribution through Apple Pay, and if you would tell me how to do that, Jonathan, it will be forthcoming. In the meantime, like you, I am proud to be blind. To you and Mushroom Radio and Treehouse Radio, Radio Storm, and all the other people who are facilitating this concert, I'm deeply grateful and very excited to be involved in it. Go blind people. Tap, tap, ping, ping, woof, woof, strum, strum. Let's raise some money. Let's raise a lot of money for those people. Let's show them how much we care for them. Absolutely, Roy. Thank you for your encouragement. And we'll have to see whether Apple Pay is possible. We're working on payment methods at the moment. I'm pretty sure that credit card and PayPal 
will be two options. We'll just have to see what else we can muster up in time. But I remember that you play the guitar because I think one of the first times you contacted the show was when Bonnie and I were having a discussion about the old folk song, Tom Dooley. Iwana is in touch and says, I'm planning to send a musical contribution to the We Are With You initiative. That's fantastic. I'm very grateful that it's all coming together, she says. While I don't know of any internet radio to approach in Romania, I left in 89, way before there was any such thing, I'd be happy to offer any translation, spoken or written, or any other linguistic contribution I can make for a Romanian audience. I do also speak French and German, if this can be useful to you. That's fantastic, Iwana, thank you. I finally want to reflect on a more tricky point. I agree with you and others that it is so important to increase representation of quality content from blind artists, journalists, etc. in the media. I know that this event's purpose is to raise funds and awareness of the horrible plight disabled Ukrainians find themselves in during this tragedy. Still, this is also an opportunity to make an impact in the larger world and spotlight quality talent in our community. I hope that other than selecting for adequate quality of recording, you'll find a way to manage the tricky balancing act of giving as many people as possible a chance to lend their voice and support to the cause with applying some selection criteria for quality content without hurting anyone's feelings. I hope this did not come off as too presumptuous, and if it did, I apologize. I did hesitate quite a bit to include this last point. Many thanks for helping galvanize our voices in speaking out and supporting the needs of the disabled community in Ukraine. Thank you, Iwana. It's always a balancing act. I found this right throughout my internet radio career with various projects that I've run where you want to be inclusive, but you also have to make sure that we have a listenable product. And I'm sure that we will. You know, there's a lot of really good musicianship and general performing artistry in our community. So I'm sure it will be listenable. It will do the blind community proud. And as you say, most important of all, we're going to raise a boatload of money to help people who need it desperately. And thank you so much for your kind offer. We'll definitely take you up on that. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large If you are in New Zealand and you're a Braille user, you have the opportunity to participate in a very important vote that is going on at the moment. And this is about something that we talk about quite a bit on this program, the capitalization of Braille when we're talking about the code Braille. Now, when I was growing up, this was not an issue. We always spelt Braille with an uppercase B, whether we were referring to the code or the individual, the genius who gave us this code and sacrificed so much. I have always spelled Braille with an uppercase B. I've talked about this on the podcast, and I have blogged about this, and I will provide a link to that blog post in the show notes for anyone who's interested in reading that article who hasn't, but particularly for New Zealanders at this particular time. People have said we don't need to capitalize the B in Braille when we refer to the code because we don't capitalize P for print, we don't capitalize A for audio. What I would say is that there has never been a Mr. or a Ms. print, and there has never been a Mr. or Ms. audio. What there was, though, was a man who gave us the most priceless gift any human being can give another, literacy. The power 
to read and write, the power that unlocks so much opportunity, so much entertainment, so much information. Louis Braille gave all that to us. And to make an analogy with print or audio is, in my view, thoroughly disrespectful, disingenuous, and it dishonors Louis Braille. The interesting thing about this debate is that the Nemeth Code, a mathematics code used in some parts of the world, is spelt with a capital N, even though Abraham Nemeth invented the code. Many blind people are radio hams, and they will know that Morse is spelt with a capital M. We also know that in many non-English-speaking countries, this isn't even an issue. Many people outside the English market shrug their shoulders and say, why are you even having this discussion? We always spell Braille with a capital B. What's the big deal with this already? Braille belongs to blind people. And it's clear to me overwhelmingly that rank-and-file Braille readers do not want Braille when referring to the code to be spelled with a lowercase b. In fact, my understanding is that the National Federation of the Blind has in its style guide that Braille should be spelt with an uppercase b at all times. And I would urge a member of the National Federation of the Blind to think about that when it comes to resolutions for this year's convention and do what we are trying to do here in New Zealand and take Braille back. At the 2020 annual general meeting of the Braille Authority of Aotearoa New Zealand, I raised the matter of the spelling of Braille with a lowercase b when referring to the code and made some of the points that I've just made here. It's taken a while, well, we've had a pandemic and various other challenges, but now the Braille Authority of Aotearoa New Zealand is holding a survey. Now, it's non-binding, so it's a poll, really, rather than a referendum, but it gives New Zealanders a chance to vote on this issue. Should Braille, when referring to the code, be spelt with a capital B or not? Now, obviously, I strongly believe that it should, and I hope that you do too and that you will vote in favour of always capitalising the B in Braille to give back the honour and respect that is due to a man who demonstrated way back in the 1800s that nothing about us without us is real, that we as blind people are in the best position to solve our own problems, and that sometimes we face stiff opposition, but sometimes with tenacity we prevail. There is so much solace that we can take from the story of Louis Braille, as well as the gift that he gave us of literacy. Many people may not realize that there was a period where Braille's books were burned at the School for the Blind in Paris because there was a sighted director of the school who felt that Braille was too different, that blind people should be made to read cumbersome raised print letters so they could be more like everyone else. And that is also why I have always stood up strongly against this concept of blind ghetto technology, because what that sighted man was saying back in the 1800s was exactly this. Oh, Braille is blind ghetto technology. And yet without Braille, I wouldn't have been able to do many of the jobs that I've done in my life, including the current one. And I know that many of us feel the same way. So Braille is about so much more than just an abstract series of dots. Braille the man and Braille the code are inseparable from one another. There is a powerful story being told every time we run our fingers across those precious, priceless dots. And Braille the code deserves an uppercase B. I will put a link to the survey in the show notes. 
and I hope that you will vote in favour of capitalising rail when referring to the code. For all things Mosin at Large, check out the website, where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosin.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Time now for me to give you an update on something that we've been talking about at length on the podcast in recent weeks, and that is accessibility regressions in both Uber apps. That's the Uber ride sharing app and Uber Eats. I do have some very positive progress to report. For that, I want to thank Scott Ballard-Ridley, who has been in touch with me and connected me with somebody at Uber beyond the first level of tech support. Based on comments that I've had on Twitter and contributions to this podcast, what's been frustrating people is that they've been submitting quite detailed bug reports to first-level Uber tech support, and it doesn't feel like they're being understood and or escalated. Some of them may have been, but it sometimes feels like they haven't been. And this is why some people are saying they're going to cancel their Uber Pass and do various other things, use alternative products. And I completely understand that because if the accessibility problems are significant and you've got alternatives where those problems don't exist, well, what are you going to do? You're going to go and get on with your life. But this is a very powerful example of how the Mosin at Large community can make a difference for all of us. Thanks to that connection that was sent my way, a couple of days ago, I got in a virtual room and had a meeting with people who can make a difference. People from the engineering team, from the product design team, from various other parts of Uber, all in the one place. I was able to demonstrate to them the problems that some of us are having. I actually fired up my voiceover. They were able to see my screen. I was able to show them exactly what the problems were that some of us have been complaining about. First of all, let me solve a mystery for some of you. And after it was explained to me, by the Uber engineers, I realized that actually I knew this all along and had just forgotten that this was a thing. Many of us have been wondering, why is it that for some people, the Uber experience seems to be perfectly fine and people are shrugging their shoulders at listeners who've been contributing to these comments on Uber saying, what's the matter? It's working perfectly fine for me. Even though we've got the same version of iOS, the same build number of the Uber app, what is up with that? As my kids might say. Well, What is up with that is actually something I had read in the tech press before, and the Uber engineers tell me that what they can do is roll out a new experience, even potentially a new feature or two, to a subset of users and then see what's going on. So if you are seeing accessibility problems, then you have won the lottery (laughs) and you are getting some of the new experiences that Uber are working on, where clearly there has been some accessibility regression. I have several encouraging takeaways from this meeting. The first is that Uber's actively working on ramping up their commitment to accessibility. I did point out that one of the big bugbears for us, and that seems like an appropriate term to use in this context, is that it seems to be hard to get through to somebody who understands the impact of these sorts of accessibility regressions and who can talk to us in a sensible way about their resolution. You've really got to go beyond frontline tech support for issues like this and offer a channel where accessibility issues are understood and hopefully prioritized. They did seem to take that on board. They also tell me that new positions are being created specifically pertaining to accessibility, and we should expect some improvements in there soon. 
And you may well be saying by this point, well, it's easy to placate people, it's easy to say the right things, talk is cheap and all that stuff. I understand your cynicism, but I can tell you that less than 24 hours after I was in that virtual room with those engineers, I do have some positive progress to report. And that is that for me, the issues with the ride-sharing app are now resolved. Here is what I had to do to get this working after Uber pushed a fix. So this is possible even without an app update if you are affected by this issue. First, launch the Uber app and then force close Uber. And when I say force close, I mean go into the app switcher and swipe up to close the Uber app and double tap and make sure that the Uber app is not in your app switcher. Then launch Uber once more and wait around about 10 seconds or more just to be safe, then force close the app. What is happening there, obviously, is that there is a little push internally of some code that's being updated. When you've done that, launch Uber again and try searching for a destination that you want to go to or choosing from your saved places. For me, the issue is now resolved and the experience is I don't know whether it's exactly a duplicate of what I used to get, but it is accessible. Given the speed with which this is all happening, I think we might be able to call this one a developing story. And I should say that I am producing this on the Friday before it is published. So it's possible that the Uber Eats situation may also have been rectified by the time you hear this. But as I record it, it has not been. They're also interested in being a bit more visible, if you will. For example, engaging with the Mosin at Large community on this podcast. And I've said to the team at Uber, whoever is appropriate to come on the show and talk, that they would be very welcome to do that. I'll ask the questions that I think people want answers to. But if they have new features, if they have improvements to tell us about, that applies to any app or any company who serves our blind community. If they have something to say, and they're willing to be questioned about it in a respectful but detailed way, be my guest. Come on the podcast. Have a chat about what you're doing. We've got a very large audience in the context of the blind community for the show, and they're quite an engaged audience, which is why we don't have trouble filling a couple of hours every week with contributions from our community. So people are very welcome. If you work for a company that provides services to our community and you have something to tell me about, well, tell me about it. So this is a very positive start. And thank you, Scott, for making the connection. Thanks to all the people from Uber who got together in one place, who went through the bug demonstration that I put together, and who are on this. Relief will be appreciated for the Uber Eats app. Carolyn Pete is in touch, and she, like me, is in New Zealand. She says, hi, Jonathan, the Uber Eats app is still a mess, and it is near impossible to use the help section. I had an issue where my order was delivered, but not to me. And the only way I could get help was to use Messenger to contact them because of how inaccessible the app is. The delivery person wasn't answering their phone. And when she eventually did, well, words fail me on how useless she was. Thanks, Carolyn. One workaround that I very fortunately have is that because I'm a Diamond Uber member, I've got a phone number that I can call when things like this happen and the app is being a problem. And I don't know, maybe one workaround for now would be that all voiceover users have access to that number for Diamond Rewards members until this is resolved. One thing the people at Uber said to me 
on this meeting was that you can also use Uber Eats on the web, and they wanted to know what kind of experience I was having with Uber Eats on the web. And I must confess, I'd forgotten about that because I just associate Uber with my smartphone so much that I never thought of giving this a try. So at the time of recording, and it's the middle of the night, actually, as I'm recording this, so there's nothing open for me to check this. But I haven't checked whether it is accessible, but you might like to try that for yourself and see what the experience is like while we await some fixes to those of us who are getting this new Uber Eats experience that isn't accessible. Hi, Jonathan. Graham Innes from Australia here. I've just listened to your program and the comments from one of your listeners on the Brilliant device. I have a Brilliant 20 and there is a bug in the recently introduced software. I've only just updated, but I think the software came out a couple of months ago, which does freeze documents in the editor. Humanware know about it. One of the ways to reduce the occurrence is to turn off cursor blinking. So I had turned on cursor blinking recently and the freezing occurs much more regularly. If you turn off cursor blinking in the settings, that is one of the things that uh, helps. The only other thing that you can do is save your material frequently because usually the saved file, you don't lose that. So you only lose the work that you've done since you've last saved. So the um, space and S command uh, saves documents. There aren't yet too many other workarounds. They do say they're fixing it and it will be fixed in the next update, but there's no date as to when that might occur. I hope this helps. Love your program as always. Hi, Jonathan and Mosin at Large listeners. This is Jane Corona from Silver Spring, Maryland. I've never used this line before, but someone on issue 170 wrote in from India with a problem with the editor freezing on the BI-40X, and I had to comment on that because it is not just his machine. We're all having problems with it. There is a list, serve uh, brilliant BI users, I think it's a groups.io list, and we're all complaining about it. It has nothing to do with what Braille code you use, I don't think. It might have a little bit to do with whether you're using a blinking cursor or not. I'm not. It's not helping me. It has nothing to do with the size of the file. You'll be typing along and your machine will go beep, and it says, editor stopped and you've lost everything you've done. So I've gotten into the habit of saving every three seconds or so. I like Humanware. I think it's a really good company, but this is a serious problem, and they know about it. So hopefully when they have another update, whenever that is, they will hopefully fix it. We've only had one update since the machine came out, and they're not talking about Um, speakers and audio anymore. I don't know. They keep promising us a new update at some point, but like the person from India, I'm sort of beginning to think that it was a marketing tool and they sort of have dropped the ball on any improvements. Of course, they're still saying that the BI 20 and 40 are not note takers. They are intelligent braille displays, but it seems to me if a machine has a word processor and you can take notes on it, it's a note taker. So I see no reason why they can't correct these problems with the editor freezing. I've I've lost quite a bit of data when the machine crashes, so I'm very leery about using it now uh, without saving every two or three seconds. So that's my sort of rant for the day, and now I'm going to go back into listening mode. So thank you so much again for, for all of the podcasts, and... Um, I will go back to listening.
Jane, you can rant all you want as far as I'm concerned, because if I had a device and I was using it to write with and I'd written something important and then the thing locked up on a regular basis, I would be ranting as well. I'm glad you and Graham before you sent in a contribution on this topic because I did give humanware the benefit of the doubt, but clearly there is a bug and a lot of people are being affected by it. I'd be interested to know how long this bug has been present because to me, that is a showstopper. That is the kind of thing where a responsible company drops everything and fixes that bug as quickly as possible gets out a maintenance release so that people aren't losing their data. We pay a lot of money for these devices and we have enough difficulty as it is finding a job, maintaining a job without having our technology let us down in this fundamental way. When things like this happen with a company where there are people I know will respond and who will care, I do reach out ahead of the podcast. So when these contributions came in, I did contact someone senior at Humanware, the right person at Humanware, and acquainted them with the fact that we would be running these contributions, confirming that there is this very serious bug in the software, inviting them to comment either in the form of a statement or I would be happy to do an interview here on the podcast so that we can get some reassurances, hopefully, about when users will get some respite from this serious issue. To date, at the time of recording, I have not had a response to that email. If we do, I'll certainly keep you posted. But if we don't, then this is something I think is worthy of the chief executive's attention. We should not, as blind people, have a bug that is in the wild for any length of time that is this serious. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. John Gassman is in touch. He says, I just got back from CSUN and three of the highlights for me were one, seeing lots of old friends and spending time with them. Two, good maps and their mapping of the Anaheim Marriott. Just imagine you're outside and using GPS to walk the streets, then transfer that feedback inside the Anaheim Marriott to rooms, restaurants and restrooms. Well, there we go. Can't say toilet because this is America. Can't say toilet. Good Maps was the hit of the convention. I'm very happy to be beta testing it now. I can see this app and the very friendly people at Good Maps revolutionizing the blind community much like Ira did a few years ago. I'm sure NFB's convention will have their hotel mapped. We'll hope that ACB will also. And finally, employees at the Humanware booth confirmed that Victor Reader Stream 3 is going to be a reality at some point in our future. They didn't have any details with regard to what would be included in the new version. Thanks, John. I don't know in terms of new product announcements whether these conferences are what they used to be, because now we're all so connected that there's no need to wait for these big shows to make announcements. People just make announcements when they're ready and they proliferate, don't they? So I get the feeling that the magic has gone from some of these conferences. That said, one product that I have seen a lot of reference to is this new Orbit Speak from Orbit Research. And this is clearly a modern version of the Braille and Speak. No Braille display on this thing. Very similar to their Orbit Writer keyboard, but a bit thicker. And it's got Wi-Fi and note-taking functions and a few basic things like that. It's small enough to fit in a pocket or purse or whatever. And it is trying to revive that whole Braille and Speak class of device. I'll be interested to see how this goes in a smartphone era. I suspect there will be quite a market 
for a product like this. Because I do hear from a lot of people who say, look, I really miss my Braille and speak. It was simple. It did what it did well. It was portable. It went forever on battery. We miss that thing. So once it's in the hands of users, I'll be really interested to hear what people think of that. And if you did go to CSUN and you want to share some experiences, then do feel free. 864-60-MOSIN is my phone number in the United States. 864-606-6736. I wish I should find a word number that says like 864-TOILET or something just to... (laughs) And uh, the email address is jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can attach an audio clip to that email or you can write it down. As we wait with bated breath... Bated breath, I tell you, for the first arm beta of Jaws, Christopher Wright writes, I'm glad Jaws is finally getting arm support. It's better late than never. NVDA has been working on arm support for Windows for some time. My understanding is Narrator should work since it's a built-in Windows component. Hopefully, once this exclusive deal with Qualcomm is over, Windows on arm will be able to be licensed and installed on any arm device. We'll have to find out whether it'll run natively on Macs. I read somewhere Apple stated Windows could run, but it was up to Microsoft to make it happen. Presumably, Microsoft would be in charge of writing all the necessary drivers to make it work, since I don't expect Apple would do it. They prefer everyone would use Mac OS. The only way I'm currently aware of to run Windows on M1 Macs is using UTM or Parallels Virtual Machine, though I prefer UTM. Parallels isn't natively accessible and requires using VOCR. I don't know about you, but I'd rather not financially support people who don't take the time to make their applications natively accessible. I don't have an M1 Mac and most likely won't get one due to macOS lock-in and voiceover neglect. But I've talked to other blind people who have used Windows 10 and 11 with their Macs. NVDA and most applications seem to work just fine. The other downside is that you must use the insider version of Windows on ARM, as that's unfortunately the only way to obtain it. Perhaps this has to do with the exclusive Qualcomm deal. The big appeal of ARM seems to be significantly better battery life, which is always a plus. I also imagine ARM desktops would use significantly less power. I'm interested to find out what happens down the road. I've read speculation that Microsoft might completely transition to ARM, like Apple at some point, but this probably won't happen for a while. Hello, Jonathan. This is Joe Norton in Dalton, Georgia. just wanted to dash off a quick message to you on the listener line, because when you mentioned the experience that you had with your computer... I suddenly realized that I was not alone. I I started to say that I'm glad that you had this experience, but I'm really not glad that you had the experience. Again, I'm just glad that I wasn't the only one that had this experience because I wasn't reading much about anyone having an experience like this. But I had just done a fresh install of Windows 11. My computer is experimented with a lot and remains in a state of flux almost. So as I was putting Windows 11 on and going to grab the updates, at some point during the update process, the system rebooted. At first, I was using Narrator. Narrator wouldn't do a thing. So I said, oh, they've broken Narrator. And then I was using NVDA, and NVDA wouldn't work. Everything came to the login screen, and as soon as I logged in, 
Nothing happened. I didn't wait five to eight minutes. I thought I did, but nothing happened. Everything ground to a screeching halt. And I did the same thing that you did. I checked on my uh, apps. Well, I used Seeing AI. Nothing appeared to be on the screen. Uh, I do think one time the time might have been showing on there, but as I say, nothing was speaking. Nothing I did spoke. I didn't even get to try JAWS because I wanted everything updated before I put JAWS on there. But anyway, I can just tell you that I am another user that had a weird experience earlier this week. I was scared. I was scared that maybe my ME storage was messing up or something like that. I've had this computer not quite two years, but I experiment with it so much I thought, oh no, I've just, the storage has messed up on it because it's totally flash, of course. And I said, oh no, I've got to buy a new computer or get it repaired, and I don't know if that's going to be worth more than getting a new system or what. So it was a thing I was a bit afraid of. But apparently these problems hopefully have gone away. But I will wait and see what happens with other people. I should be reading something here in a few days about it if other people have it, but who can say? Yes, and you see, it was only just recently that you, Joe, were waxing lyrical, lyrical about your Surface Book or whatever the Surface thingy is that you have. So you might have jinxed it by calling in to Mosin at Large. Anyway, I'm glad that you got yours sorted out too. It is pretty scary. And over the week, I have heard from a number of people on social media who experienced the same thing. I wonder what the culprit is. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. More feedback on the subject of accessible thermostat technology. And Rebecca Skipper writes in and says, I have a Nest thermostat that works with the Google Home and the Google Home speaker. I can change the temperature using the app and give commands to the Google speaker. This thermostat required an AC technician to install it. The thermostat also requires two AAA batteries. The thermostat app is in the Google Home app and works consistently, but if the AAA batteries run low, I can't get the Google Home speaker to control the thermostat. I can set schedules and check the indoor temperature using the iOS app. I was able to set my temperature range and keep the thermostat on the heat cool mode. I can adjust the temperature as needed using the Google app or give the Google Home commands such as make it warmer, turn off the thermostat, cool it down or increase the temperature to 72 degrees. It's cool, baby. David Green is emailing in from Canada and he says on episode 170, one of your contributors was talking about the Sony Link Buds. That was Kevin Chow. I was hoping that he would talk about the fit in the ear, such as do they go in the ear canal or sit outside, like the Apple EarPods. I recently bought the Beats Fit Pro and returned them after using them for four or five days. They penetrated my ear canal and the little tail that is supposed to help them fit better hurt my ear. 
So back they went for an exchange for the Apple third-generation EarPods. I presume that's AirPods, right? Not not EarPods, because the EarPods are the wired things that come with an iPhone. Anyway, the Apple third-generation are the best fitting yet, but I am interested in the Sony Link Buds. Here in Ottawa, Canada, the three EarPods mentioned are all around $250 plus tax. Even though the store has a return policy, I feel they get suspicious when I keep returning the product after a few days. I am, like the rest of your listeners, enjoying your podcast. Thank you very much for writing in, David. And in the meantime, maybe somebody who owns the Link Buds, maybe Kevin Chow is still listening, can answer your question. But you may be able to get a good product description or a series of reviews by Googling the product name and adding review at the end. Sony Link Buds Review should give you the information that you need. Hi, Jonathan. This is Richard Nuanis in Washington, D.C. First of all, I want to say that I think what you do for the blind community is absolutely terrific. Thanks for that. You asked about songs that have ableist language in them. Uh, There's a blues classic, and in fact, it's a great song called I'd Rather Go Blind. It's by Etta James, and there's been covers by Rod Stewart, Beyonce, and even Dua Lipa. Anyway, the lyrics are, I'd rather go blind and see you walk away. Uh, the insinuation is pretty obvious that the only thing more horrible than going blind is having your heart broken. And of course, I'm being sarcastic. Anyway, whenever I hear it, I stop in my tracks and I have to say a blind person could not listen to it without feeling self-conscious. Thanks for calling in, Richard. I know that one. Actually, the blues is full of blind references, not just in songs, but in the names of the artists too, you know, blind something or other. I can't remember any specific ones now, but I tell you, the blues is full of them. Here's blind Dan Teveld writing in. He says, hi, Jonathan, I like your discussion topics. So here is my contribution. The song which I absolutely hate <laughs> is MacArthur Park by Richard Harris. Oh, I know this song just really pushes some people's buttons. Dan says, there are so many bad things about it that I don't know where to start. The words don't make sense and are extremely maudlin. Maybe he wrote it while drunk. Then there is his horrible singing voice. I wouldn't call it singing as he sounds like a bleating sheep. (laughs) That's Richard Harris who sang that song. And of course, he went on to play Dumbledore in the early Harry Potter movies. And then sadly, he died. It is an extraordinary song. I mean, why would you leave a massive cake full of sweet green icing in the rain. I mean, why would you take that cake outside and leave it in the rain? And if you were conscious of the fact that it took so long to bake the cake, wouldn't you kind of just be really careful about who took that cake? And why would they take it and leave it out in the rain anyway? And why wouldn't you just bake it again if you had to? Surely you've got the recipe somewhere. Well, you could commit it to memory or something. It, it is an extraordinary song. But then there's a part of me that says that song is a magnum opus. I mean, the orchestration is amazing. The big build up with the choir singing at the end there. And also what I liked about MacArthur Park when I worked full time on the radio was that it lasted forever. How long is it? About six and a bit minutes, maybe. So in the old days, when we didn't have automation systems like we have now on the radio, You could go to the little machine, you know, because apparently you can't say toilet in America. You can go to the little machine, the little room, and come back and know that your song would still be playing unless it got stuck, unless it got stuck, unless it got stuck. Because maybe we didn't have cards even 
on the cheaper radio stations. Anyway, I haven't finished with Dan's email yet. I'm glad we didn't leave the email out in the rain. I'm glad I didn't leave my mantis out in the rain. Now, that would be worth singing about. Another song, says Dan, I absolutely hate, is Jack and Diane. Oh, my, what? How can you hate that? Jack and Diane by John Camp. No doubt one of the reasons I hate it was the constant airplay when the song was popular. Now let's get positive from Dan, because he says, about songs I like, there is a song, Jean, sung by Oliver. Oh yes, Jean, Jean, Roses are Green, or something, which was used in the movie The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, based on a novel of the same name, by Muriel Spark. The text was written by Rod McEwen, who also sang a version of it. There is yet another recording of it by Bobby Goldsborough, which I don't like. Oh, right. Well, is anybody going to bring up Honey by Bobby Goldsborough if we're talking about songs that people like and dislike? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, the old Honey. I used to I used to laugh at it, and to be honest, I don't anymore because, yeah, anyway, I, I don't anymore. The orchestration is too heavy-handed, says Dan. I love your podcast, and listening to it is the highlight of my weekend. Well, that's very kind, Dan. Thank you. Keep the interesting topics coming. Well, if you want to talk about songs you really love and songs you can't stand, be my guest. Put our podcast to the test. 86460-MOSIN is my number. That is in the United States. 86460-6736. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com on the email. You can record something and attach it to the email or write it down. Mosin at Large Michelle Stevens is writing in with some sad news and she says, not sure if you heard, a friend of mine told me that Andrea Sherry from Australia passed away about a week ago. That was at the time of writing in mid-March. Andrea was a blind lady who was brilliant with adaptive technology. Some people may remember her from the GW micro list and she was a big fan of NVDA. As well, Andrea was very passionate about adaptive technology for blind people and the low vision community. She taught me that you can be the boss of your computer if you put the time and energy into knowing your technology. We met 30 years ago and shared a house for about 21 years. I know many people here may remember her. Andrea loved her talking books and spent a lot of time improving the quality of the sound production through various audio editing programs. It was a mystery for me because I could never hear them that well. She absolutely loved old-time serials, particularly sci-fi old-time serials, and a lot of the programs from the BBC. The first time I met Andrea and my introductions to a screen reader in the old Arctic program, I found it all so very mystifying. I acknowledge what I know and can do with computers was a direct influence from the friendship and mentoring that Andrea gave to me. Thank you for everything, Andrea. We'll miss you so much. And Andrea will have a memorial service on the 31st of March. If you would like to know more information about that, you can contact Michelle Stevens, and I do have her email. Thank you for letting us know that, Michelle. I do remember Andrea. Her name is very familiar to me. I remember her on the email lists way, way back, and I'm sorry to hear that news. She definitely made a contribution and demystified this world of assistive technology for many people. So she will be missed. To Hungary we go. And this email comes from Gingy. I hope I have got that pronunciation right. 
The email says, Hi, Jonathan. I'm a bit on the shy side when it comes to contacting radio programs or podcasts, but I thought maybe you'd like to know the story of Patient Zero, (laughs) who experienced the Dell Audio problem, or at least Patient Zero for Freedom Scientific. And I have to say, I'm very grateful to the developers of Waves Max, although their product is, of course, awful for screen reader users, and it caused me many unpleasant hours. I started experiencing the problem in June 2020. I first thought the fault was with my unit and sent it back to the shop where it came from, just still under warranty, and they did the servicing. Funnily enough, the technician said the SSD had a factory error, and so he replaced it. The error persisted, so I sent it back again. To cut a long story short, I had the pleasure of getting to know a very unskilled technician who didn't even notice the problem, although he tested the device with JAWS. It soon became clear to me that it was a screen reader thing, so I first contacted our localizer folks who couldn't help. Then I found a partial workaround. I used an ASUS sound card with JAWS, and that helped quite a bit, though the problem still occurred occasionally. Finally, in February 2021, I contacted Glenn Gordon via FSCast, better late than never, as I was a regular listener to his musical web on the shroom. Do we want the musical web back? Yes, we do. Anyway, back in February, we weren't able to track down the ram-eating culprit. We did that in August, I think, shortly after a couple of other people started reporting it. However, that February email was followed by more emails and soon calls, one that had and have nothing to do with WavesMax. Glenn and I have a lot of interests and trays in common and can talk for hours on end. It's partially his fault that I've started learning to code. I always wanted to, though, but those are problems I'm happy to live with. Joke aside, WavesMax helped generate a very close friendship. Thank you, Dell, for adopting this awful piece of software, but probably it's now time to move on and find something better. And thanks, Glenn, for not letting our communication cease when the tech bit was over. I'd have never believed that from something as atrocious as WavesMax, I, we, could gain something as pleasant and rewarding as we did. Well, there you go. You see, if there's ever an example of every cloud having a silver lining, it is that. And yeah, one of the many things that we, I hope he's not listening. I hope he's not listening. One of the many things that we have to thank Glenn Gordon for in the blind community is that Glenn is tenacious. I've also had the privilege to work with Glenn on several issues over the years, some of them quite recent, in fact. And the thing about this is that when there is something going on and you know that the screen reader has something to do with it, it may not even be JAWS necessarily, but it's something about audio or interaction or something, and it's not immediately apparent. Glenn is incredibly tenacious. So I'm glad he was able to track it down for you and that you got so much more out of it than an explanation as to what was going on with your Dell. Hi Jonathan, it's Sally here. I wanted to talk to you today about the webinar I attended last week, which was the day after the new release of Apple products. And it was talking about new accessibility features. I want to put a rider on this that I'm a beta or public beta user. 
So I've seen some of these functions before and I honestly cannot remember what's in the beta and what's in the public release anymore. So I'm going to go over some of the features that were discussed. I'm also going to skip over the ones that we have already discussed here on the podcast or you've, you've discussed on the podcast. So I'll um, start by talking about the beginning, Apple did its usual politically correct spiel and described everybody that was on the screen, including clothing and so forth. I still don't know actually how I feel about that and I don't find it as useful. I was actually thinking it was a little bit of a waste of time because I was busy at work at the time I watched this. So anyway, into the real stuff. They talked about things like voice recognition and improvements to that. And I know we've talked about voice recognition here before, so I'm not going to go into the great details. Similarly, live text. And for those people who haven't played with live text, it's the ability to be able to pick text out of photos and actually select it. And I use this quite a bit with my credit card, take a picture of my credit card and pull the text out of it to paste it into the box. So that's quite useful and I actually use that one quite a bit. Uh, one of the things that they talked about also was sound recognition and I haven't played with this, but they talked about the fact that your phone can recognise things like a siren, a doorbell or a baby crying and then link to other shortcuts such as flicking the lights and things like that to let you know that it's happening if you can't hear. The one thing they did say that is useful was that you have to be careful because when you turn sound recognition on, it automatically turns off the ability to say hurry and you need to go back in and turn it on. So that's a known bug that they talked about there. They talked about linking things into shortcuts. None of that's really new, I don't think, as I'm a power user of shortcuts anyway, and I don't actually think there are any changes to that. The one thing that interests me a lot, and I think Jonathan's mentioned it before, was the headphone accommodations. So with the AirPods Pro, well I think it's all the AirPods actually, but AirPods Pro and the Beats with the H1 chip, they give you the uh, opportunity or, or functionality to actually match your audiogram if you have an audiogram and I thought that was quite cool and it's something I am actually going to go and play with when I can actually get a decent updated picture of my audiogram. The one I have is a bit old and I'm particularly interested in this because I'm actually looking at simulating visual fields from taking a photograph of the visual field test so using OCR to pull out the data that I need and then taking that and altering it to my own needs. They also talked about Conversation Boost for the AirPods Pro. That's been around a while for hearing aid users, so I'm not going to go into that for in much detail, but it can actually provide a Conversation Boost, and I think it also blocks out, does noise cancelling at the same time. I do have some AirPods Pro, and I do like the fact in noisy environments I can noise cancel, but then in other environments it's not the best idea. They talked about background sounds and sound ducking and the focus modes that Jonathan has gone into in some detail to actually minimise distractions. So I'm not going to go over the uh, focus. 
The thing they spent a lot of time on was the head pointer and using facial expressions to actually be able to interact, and I actually thought that was very cool. So they um, went into quite a lot of detail about head tracking, switch control and facial expressions. Using head angles to actually do things like pan, and I haven't actually looked at this functionality for quite some time, and I found that in the demo it was a lot smoother and a lot more refined than it has ever been before. They did talk about direct touch and Jonathan's talked about that so I will skip that. They talked about sound actions with the switch and that was quite useful in that you could begin to form words like ah and ba and la and it would actually pick up on those to control things like the lights in your home and things like that. And I thought that would be quite useful for those who have difficulty forming words and only get the first little bit out. So that was quite useful. It actually used recognition to recognise how you say it rather than just normal voice recognition without all of the individualisation. They did talk about assistive touch and dwell for a while and I quite liked the dwell because you're able to hold for one second and lock and wake your iPad by looking at it, which I thought was quite cool. So dwell is where you, in the rudimentary sense, when you look at something and, and fixate on it, it will actually do a command as well. Uh, they did talk about privacy features like the different alphanumeric face ID, auto lock and that kind of thing. But I'm going to skip those because Jonathan's previous podcast about the different password managers and things like that has been quite useful. So I think I've mentioned the Apple Watch and Assistive Touch in another message I've sent to Jonathan and I actually tried this a while ago when I saw it on TikTok um, and that was using accessibility features on the beta to actually click using pinch gestures, clench gestures and uh, moving your arm to hover the pointer as somebody who doesn't have a physical and motor disability, I found that quite or too sensitive for me, actually, to be quite honest. And I kept actually triggering the Apple Watch and the functions without it. So it was very sensitive. Um, but the application of it could be amazing for a lot of people. They talked about privacy and account recovery. and how to, and this, this I thought was quite interesting because I've been in the situation of having to do this. They talked about digital legacy and the changes to digital legacy. So exam for example, how somebody can actually set the next of kin type thing and then that person, um, if they set it in advance, can actually access and delete their account and things like that with just by just producing a death certificate instead of jumping through hoops. So I've done that in the past and tried to change accounts when my husband passed away and found that incredibly difficult to actually do. So they've implemented that. They talked about the different data that's collected in the health app and the thing that I thought that was the most useful in the health arena was actually that they have apparently, and I don't know how long this has been in because I don't use it, but they use um, sign language and uh, for fitness workouts, so you can actually turn on a sign language interpreter, or they do adaptive workouts as well that are individualised to needs. So they have wheelchair workouts. The hard fall capacity can automatically call emergency services now. I think Jonathan's talked about these already, 
but the walking steadiness and things like that are now mobility metrics and I've played with that one in the past in the beta and it's quite useful just for looking at getting your walking speed but also looking at your gait and when I uh, had a bit of a sore knee from <laughs> enduring it or doing something I shouldn't I actually looked at my gait and I could tell that it was unsteady. I'd like more information on that, for example, how it's unsteady. And uh, I might go back in and have another look and see if they've implemented that. And the one that I find quite useful that they talked about, and I've been using for a while now, is um, single app accessibility settings. So um, I can use a little bit of large print until I get too tired. But what I've done is for some apps where large print breaks the screen layout, which is actually more than you would think. There's quite a few apps where large print actually just makes them impossible to use. So I've set those apps back to normal size and left the apps that do work in large print. And you can set that individually through the control panel. So they're just some of the features. Again, to be quite honest, there's nothing groundbreakingly new there, I don't think, except perhaps the hearing aid and audiogram part of it, and some of the mouse pointer and facial recognition and facial expression. And as Apple normally does, it's more of a pushing out of information rather than discussing accessibility. I did ask my question that I had last week about whether I could make a, gest a shortcut a gesture to move my mail and nobody could answer that and they didn't really even know where I could find that information. In the meantime I found out a little bit about that in that I'm restricted by the fact that mail doesn't offer that shortcut. Not the gestures, I can do everything I want with the gesture setup and I can do everything I want uh, with the shortcut setup but the mail app doesn't have the ability to actually move mail as a shortcut action. And that's where I'm kind of stuck. It will not surprise you to know that I am a radio geek, and I know we have quite a few radio geeks listening to this show. This segment was inspired by the fact that last Monday, MediaWorks, one of the two big radio conglomerates in New Zealand now, launched a new talk network. If you were being a bit less charitable, you may well say that MediaWorks rebranded their old talk network that was a terrible flop for a variety of reasons that I won't bore you with. But this is a new brand, mostly new hosts. It's a complete makeover. It's kind of like a format change. And because I'm a radio geek, I love listening to radio stations either coming on air or changing format. The thing I like the most is when a new radio station starts, but that's pretty rare now because in New Zealand and I think in most parts of the world, there aren't really many radio frequencies left. So what normally happens is radio stations just change format or maybe they change owners or whatever, but it isn't often that you see a radio station coming on. The last time this happened actually was last year in New Zealand because a radio station completely closed down as a result of the pandemic, they went off the air, they turned off their transmitters, and then those frequencies were bought by another outfit. So for the first time in a long time, I got my little radio out 
and I waited for the test transmissions to start, you know, waiting for the carrier to come on first, and then you get testing. Sometimes you get a test tone. That was exciting. And one of the interesting things about New Zealand radio when I was a child was that we had a lot of temporary radio stations. The airwaves then were controlled by an entity called the Broadcasting Tribunal. And if you wanted to broadcast, you used to have to put together a lengthy application, basically talking about the public good, the gap that you would be filling in the market, precisely who was on the air and what qualified these people to be on the air. Why would they be given this awesome responsibility of being on the airwaves? And I know about this procedure because I've done it twice. When I was a teenager, I started a radio station at the School for the Blind And we had a transmitter, 250 watts, and we had to apply twice to the Broadcasting Tribunal for a license. And in those days, it was a pretty lengthy and difficult process. We did have this phenomenon where you could apply for temporary licenses. So when I was a kid, a lot of radio stations would come and go, and they would do testing and all sorts of things like that. And I was enthralled by this. And then in the 1980s, it got super exciting because, as I have mentioned on my various shows over the years, New Zealand used to be such a backwater that we didn't have any FM radio until the 1980s. It's hard to believe now when New Zealand is basking in some of the fastest broadband in the world and we're often used as a technological test bed, but we were the polar opposite before, I don't know, the 1990s or early 2000s. It was a backwater. And so our first FM radio station that was full-time and legal didn't come on until 1983. The other perk of this was that I used to listen to a lot of pirate stations on FM, particularly in the early 80s, and I loved listening to the FM pirates. They would drive around in their little van doing their radio shows, and they'd relocate when they thought that the radio inspectors were onto them. All good fun. Just in case they wanted to get really adventurous and bold and allow FM broadcasting, the government of the day had allocated a little bit of spectrum. I believe it was from... 88 to 94 megahertz that was just blank in case they ever wanted to bring FM in. And then when you got past 94 megahertz, what you got was a lot of radio telephones, even the occasional cordless telephone. I can remember listening to somebody's baby monitor when I was staying with someone once, and that was surprisingly clear. So with all this blank FM spectrum, another advantage was that every so often the conditions would be right And I would be able to hear FM stations from overseas. And when the conditions were right, they were really right. They were coming in like locals at times. I remember there'd be a break in the band. Not only would I hear stations from Australia, including their fine music network, and I believe I remember hearing Triple J, but I also got stations from places like New Caledonia, coming in crystal clear, in stereo, broadcasting in French. Amazing times. So I grew up with a lot of radio stations coming on the air and testing and launching. And I think that's one of the reasons why in my own internet radio career, I've always tried to make a big deal of the launches with one exception. And that was the ACB radio launch, which was really soft, a very soft launch. We made up for it when we launched ACB Radio Interactive, though. And if you've listened to the launches of other internet radio stations that I have owned, you will know that we like to have a lot of fun with them and people do appreciate the build up. 
So I thought that I would just go through a couple of the launches that I remember and maybe one that I don't. The one that I don't was very significant. If you're a Mushroom FM listener, you may have heard the documentary that I did called Born Free, which was a history of Radio Hauraki. New Zealand's first Labour government banned, effectively, private radio in 1936. And all the way until 1966, all radio stations, including the commercial radio stations, were owned by the government. Inspired by the offshore pirates in Britain, Radio Hauraki sought to change that. And they went out to sea on a ship called the Tiri, and they broadcast from there and changed radio forever. The outcome was very different from the outcome of the UK pirates. The UK pirates were forcibly shut down effectively by legislation that was passed in 1967. But in New Zealand, Radio Hauraki won their battle. And in 1970, this new broadcasting tribunal was created and they were given a license to broadcast on land, breaking the government's monopoly. I've got a lot of recordings of Radio Hauraki. I collect them. And this is what the launch of Radio Hauraki sounded like on the 26th of September, 1970. This is Radio Hauraki. The time is one and a half minutes to six. Stand by for a new experience in New Zealand radio. Fifteen. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Six o'clock. Good morning, Captain. Yes, a good, good morning to you. It is really something, gang, to be talking to you right now. This is Ian McGann on Radio Hauraki. And this is the start of many, many years of fun time things between you and us and everybody we love. This is the new Radio Hauraki. Radio Hauraki. I gotta love those Pam's jingles. You might remember that series if you're a radio geek. That is Ian McGann, who was also a key voice on the Tiri when Radio Hauraki were out at sea, launching them on land on the 26th of September 1970. When we got to the 25th anniversary of Radio Hauraki putting out to sea, so that was in 1991, I was working on the radio full time and I was doing a morning show where I was doing interviews and I interviewed Ian McGann at length about his time on Radio Hauraki. That was such a privilege. I have to confess, I was a bit starstruck as a young guy interviewing him, and he was very gracious. And ironically, I was interviewing him on the same frequency that Radio Hauraki used during their AM days. I grew up in Auckland, New Zealand's largest city, and we had two FM radio stations that came on air within a month of each other in 1983. Auckland was the first city to get legal full-time FM radio. The station that made it on the air first on the 26th of April 1983 was Magic 91. They also called it Radio MJK because one MJK was its call sign. And they went for the easy listening market. I remember so clearly the day that we got a carrier on 91 megahertz. It was so incredibly powerful and clear. 
And there was just this big gap on the FM band, this lack of hiss. And finally, we knew that FM radio was coming. We were just so excited. Then they started playing some pretty interesting test transmissions where they gathered a whole bunch of songs together with magic in the title. It went a bit like this. This is Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM, with a test transmission. We'll commence full-time broadcasting 8 o'clock this Tuesday morning. In stereo, Magic 91 FM. Magic 91 FM, with a test transmission from our Waiatarua transmitter site, with an effective radiated power of 50,000 watts. In stereo, Magic 91 FM. Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM, stereo music radio. This is Radio MJK. You're listening to a test transmission. We go on air 24 hours a day from 8 o'clock tomorrow morning here at Magic 91 FM. Radio MJK's Magic 91 FM's countdown. Only 10 minutes remaining. Only nine minutes to the launch of New Zealand's first commercial FM station. Radio MJK, we call it Magic 91 FM. Radio MJK's Magic 91 FM, only eight minutes remaining. Only seven minutes remaining in the countdown to the launch of New Zealand's first commercial FM station. Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM. Only six minutes remaining in our countdown to the launch of New Zealand's first commercial FM station. Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM. MJK's Magic 91 FM. Only five minutes to go. We're only four minutes away from New Zealand's first commercial FM station. Radio MJK Magic 91 FM. Three minutes to go to Radio MJK's Magic 91 FM. When New Zealand's first commercial FM station gets underway in only two minutes' time, Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM. Only one minute to the launch of New Zealand's first commercial FM station, Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM. 59, 58, 57, 56, 55, 54, 53... 51, 50, 49, 48, 47, 
46, 45, 43, 42, 41, 40, 39, 38, 37, 36, 35, 34, 33, 32, 31, 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25, 24, 23, 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. In the beginning, there was sound. Thomas Edison made the recording of it possible. And then, with the genius of Marconi, sound was able to be transmitted over great distances. By the 1930s and 40s, radio had come of age. But still much of the sound, the music especially, was broadcast live, recording still in its infancy. Ramona. I hear those mission bells about. By the 1950s, radio was beginning to reflect the rapid advances being made in recording techniques. And with the advent of stereo recording in the 1960s, on AM radio we were listening to songs like this. I saw her today, I saw her face, was a face I loved. and recorded music, now inseparable, took on the 1970s. The production of songs became more sophisticated, with 18, then 24, and then by the late 70s, up to 36 tracks being used. When you rise in the morning sun I feel you touch me in the pouring rain However, this music on radio in New Zealand has been in one dimension only. Till now, in 1983, the turning point for Auckland Radio is New Zealand's first commercial FM stereo station. Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM. Here is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. The Right Honourable Mr. Robert Muldoon. This is an historic moment. The opening of the first FM radio station for New Zealand audiences. I'm delighted to participate and I know that there will be tremendous interest in Radio MJK FM which will be giving a signal that will cover the whole of the Auckland metropolitan area and some distance beyond. I wish all those who are concerned with the station the best of good fortune for the future and I now declare Radio MJK FM open. Radio MJK is owned and operated by Metropolitan FM Limited, a private company with studios at 132 Hurstmere Road, Takapuna. Our promise is simple. More music and less talk. 
If you like your music with less interruptions and less disc jockey chatter, you'll love the stereo magic of 91 FM. Six talented presenters will be linking up the music and features on Magic 91. These presenters have been hand-chosen to project a warm, natural, friendly communication. Hello, I'm Kim Adamson, and this is Magic 91 FM. I'll be joining you for breakfast Monday to Friday with a nice warm wake-up on Magic 91 FM. Hi, I'm Dave Jamison here at Magic 91 FM. I'll be having a chat with you at 10 o'clock this morning and something to look out for at 12 midday. We've got the midday break featuring all the notes. Hi, my name's Peter McElwain. I'll be with you in the afternoons between 2 and 6 with lots of good music. One of the things to look forward to is the 60s at 6 if you're into a bit of magic nostalgia. Look forward to your company this afternoon at 2 here at Magic 91 FM. Hi, I'm Stuart Hunt and I'll be with you on the evening show from 6 till 10 every weekday night here on Magic 91. Hello, John Taylor. And I'll be with you at nights from 10 till 2. Uh, by the way, tonight's feature artist is Simon and Garfunkel. Looking forward to your company right here on Magic 91. Hi, this is Dave Shu, and I look forward to being with you through the wee small hours of most mornings right here at Magic 91 FM. At Magic 91, we take our news seriously. Craig Little, utilising the ever-growing resources and news-gathering respect of Radio Pacific, will broadcast news every hour on the hour and half hour between 6am and 9am every morning. We'll have a major bulletin at 12 noon, and then to wrap up the day as you drive home in stereo, news will happen at 4.30, 5.30 and 6.30. I hope you join us for our first news bulletin coming up at 8.30 this morning on Radio MJK. To complement our music, Magic 91 FM will be serving up some interesting features, specials and music weekends. There's the FM Album of the Week. Our first week, we'll track through the new Al Jiro album. And our first Magic Weekend of this weekend is the Supersets. Three in a row, back-to-back -back from your favourite artists or groups, non-stop from 3pm this coming Friday. There are other regular features too numerous to mention. For example, weather, boating, skiing, fishing, business, sport, entertainment and community reports. We hope you'll enjoy each and every one. To celebrate the opening of Magic 91 FM, keep an eye on your mailbox for our special invitation to listen. You could win our superb Akai ProLab S11 stereo sound system, valued at over $1,500. But there's a big catch. We'll be jetting you all the way to Akai's factory in Japan to pick up your prize. You'll be flying JAL with super oriental attention and luxury all the way. Radio MJK, Magic 91 FM, will have about half the current commercial load of other radio stations in Auckland. Or if you like to look at it another way, we'll have double the music, and it's all in stereo. On behalf of the directors and shareholders, we would like to personally thank the hundreds of people who've supported and helped us gain our license, build and equip our radio station. We know all of you are listening right now, and without you, our reality would still be a dream. Once again, thank you. For all those who are sampling stereo for the first time, remember, we're your radio station. So don't hesitate to call us if you have any suggestions or comments or reception problems. That was the first commercial FM station ever to exist in New Zealand, launched on the 26th of April 1983. There was so much interest in that, not just from us at school, but I think it was there was a wide interest, and as you heard, the Prime Minister of New Zealand opened that. They did some pretty innovative things for a while until they were pinged. One of the things that they did was they had a program on a Sunday night called the BASF 90. BASF was a brand of cassette tape. And what they would do was on the Sunday, they would publish the songs that they were going to play from a given artist or two, 
and they would leave little gaps between the tracks and they would encourage you to buy a BASF C90 tape. They would time it so that you had 45 minutes of music and then they would say, all right, we're just going to give you a pause so you can turn the tape over now. You'd get your pause enough to turn the tape over and then they'd do another 45 minutes with nice little gaps between the tracks and then eventually the record companies came back and they said, oi, stop doing that already. Well, a month later, we got the next FM station. Two licenses were granted, and I think there was a bit of a competition about who would get there first. The second license belonged to a company called Stereo FM Limited, and they set up a station called 89FM. It was actually on 89.4 megahertz, and they went for the rock format. And they did a major raid, a major raid on the Radio Hauraki personnel. And they got these very famous broadcasters who were inspired by the really laid back, chill US FM album rock format. And that's what they tried to do. They broadcast very lengthy test transmissions. In fact, I think they started testing on the day that Magic 91 opened. And I think the test transmissions are actually the best part of 89FM. They played some great music without any interruption during that period. But then it was time to launch, and I distinctly remember getting to school early because 89FM said that they were going to launch at 8.09am on the 26th of May. And wow, what a launch it was. I remember a bunch of us in the resource room at the high school that we were all going to, all clustered around the radio, spellbound by this. This is 1ROQ, 89 Stereo FM in Auckland. I'm Tony Amos, and I'm honoured to introduce the person who created the opportunity for radio broadcasting to seek the challenge of development when he established New Zealand's first private radio station. And now, to open ours, and for the first time in stereo, our friend and mentor, Mr David Gapes. Thank you, Tony. A prolonged build-up on the air and full-page newspaper ads guarantee me a very large audience. So, let's into it. I should firstly mention the terrific, talented and dedicated bunch of people, many of whom I've worked with before, who I see around me here. It's been said before, and it's worth saying again, radio is people, and from personal observation, I can tell you the people here are the best. I should also express the hope that AM radio forgets its so-called stereo AM or synchro AM, or whatever they call it. And look to AM strengths, talk programs such as news, sports, talkback and high rotation top 40. I mean, nobody really believes that FM stereo isn't going to sweep the board with the music feel. In the end, these changes are of course inevitable. 
And as Peter Sinclair said recently, one thing is for certain, it is the listening public of Auckland who will be the sure winners. I hope also to see 89 Stereo FM, the station, as a leader in the community. Not only a leader in musical and broadcasting terms, I hope the station actively encourages respect and liking for black music and language and truly attempts to reflect our unique and wonderful Auckland racial mix. But I also believe 89 Stereo FM should set a civic example and work to achieve a 25% black staffing rate. I should also hope that the station recognises another sure winner today, and that is it throws its weight behind the burgeoning anti-nuclear movement. Finally, I want to say this. I've heard it said of the people here that due no doubt to the Hauraki background of many of them that I have unleashed a bunch of cowboys. To me, that is a lovely compliment. I would hate to have been responsible for a bunch of bureaucrats. So you, you lucky listeners, are in for a treat. I welcome you all and now declare 89 Stereo FM truly open. Quite some jingle, wasn't it? 89 FM opening on the 26th of May, 1983. And that heartbeat thing went on. I mean, it went on for a long time building up. The heartbeat started very slowly and then it gradually got faster. And you got that amazing sound at 8.09 AM. 
A little south of Auckland is the Waikato area, and that is where Dean Charlton is from. And he's writing in to say he remembers the start of the station that was originally called 898 FM in 1984 on 89.8 MHz. We could get it so clearly from South Auckland where I was. So that was pretty exciting as well because we had another FM radio station that we could listen to. It fairly quickly rebranded as Kiwi FM but it started off as 898FM, and actually this is how it started. This is 898FM, rock in stereo, broadcasting a test transmission. 898FM goes to air on the 4th of June. For more information, give us a call on Hamilton 82299. From next Monday, 898FM will be on air officially. 898FM signal is coming to you from the transmission tower on top of Mount Te Aroha. This is 898 FM. We'll be officially commencing our broadcast in just a couple of moments. This is 898 FM, commencing transmission on Monday, the 4th of June, 1984. Here's the Minister of Broadcasting, Dr. The Honourable Ian Shearer. Good morning, I'm Ian Shearer and I'd like to welcome Waikato listeners to 898 FM. This is certainly an exciting day for FM listeners in Hamilton and further afield. As Minister of Broadcasting... I'm delighted to be here to play a small part in bringing Stereo FM to the Waikato. We may be New Zealand's fourth FM station, but 898 FM is the greatest of them all. Coast to coast, Raglan to the Mount, Coromandel to the King Country. And a special hello to the boys and girls on the Bruce, way down there at the Shadow Tongariro. 898 FM, rock in stereo, is here today. It's here to stay. Congratulations and best wishes to the country's newest FM station, 898 FM, here in Hamilton. Ian Shearer, the Minister of Broadcasting. Now here's the Chairman of the 898 FM Board, Mr John Wickham. Good morning. This is indeed a wonderful day for us. After eight years of investigations, testings, trippings overseas to check what's happening there, we are on the air. This whole venture started for us back in 1976 when Mr Ian Johnson, the then manager of the station, raised the question with the board. Two years later, we sent him to America where he examined FM in that country and here today we are on air. Mr Ian Johnson, we're delighted to have with us and also two of the former directors who were then involved closely with the installation of FM in the Waikato Bay of Plenty area. A special welcome to our further field of Bay of Plenty and surrounding territories such as Coromandel, where we did not get to on the Radio Waikato. A very, very large thank you to all the staff of Radio Waikato who have been working something in excess of 24 hours a day for the last few days to get this accomplished. That is not taking account of the many, many hours they've put in over many months. Chairman of the 898FM Board, Mr John Wickham. And now we'd like to officially introduce you to 898FM. Finn Lizzie's The Boys Are Back in Town launching 898FM on Queen's Birthday Monday, the 4th of June, 1984. And what incredible staff they had, according to that board chair, to defy the laws of physics and work in excess of 24 hours a day. That's what he said. But the interesting thing about 898FM was that it was 
I believe, the first license to be granted to an existing radio company. So the Auckland stations were deliberately new. They wanted to introduce further competition into the Auckland market. In the case of 898FM, that was run by Radio Waikato, which was a private station that had then been operating on AM and continued to do so. I could go on for hours with this stuff, but there is one more I want to play for you because I think it is the most innovative and bizarre launch that I have heard in this country. And it happened in 1991 when in Auckland, the 93.4 frequency was allocated and we got a carrier on 93.4. We knew who owned the frequency. I was working in radio then, but we didn't know what he was going to do with it. And so we all tuned into the test transmissions wanting to hear what the station was going to be called and what format it was going to play. But Rob Mackay, who ran that station, was intending to have a lot of fun and games with this. And the name of the station and the kind of music that it was going to play was kept a very closely guarded secret all the way until the moment it was launched. So what did we get when we tuned in for the test transmissions? Well, what we got was even by 1991 standards, an extremely bad speech synthesizer. And it started a countdown. I believe it started at about the 100 or 200 thousands, and it would just keep speaking these numbers, you know, 201,175, and then a pause, 201,174, and on it would go, occasionally telling us that when the countdown reached number one, there'd be a new radio station. We never knew when the countdown was going to get to number one, and so we kept just checking in to see how the countdown was going. And as I recall, it actually finally did reach number one at a really random time, like about 12.40 in the afternoon, I think on a Saturday. Here's the end of that countdown, and then we finally found out what the station was. Seventeen, sixteen, fifteen, fourteen, thirteen, twelve, eleven, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, number one, number one, number one, number one, number one. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a brand new radio station. A radio station that's dedicated to the proposition that you love your oldies. Some radio stations say they play oldies. But you have to wait through a lot of new, unfamiliar songs that you don't know before you get to hear a great oldie. Here at 93.4 FM, we're going to specialize in playing all oldies all the time. Songs that make you feel good. That are fun to sing along with. Well, she was just 17. Just one look. That's all it took. Yeah, just one look. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap, too. Songs that bring back the memories of the 60s. Get your hair bun, 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 till the daddy takes the TV away. 
she was just walking down the street singing. Welcome to a brand new kind of radio station, playing all the songs that you grew up with. Good times and great oldies, oldies 93.4. Hi, this is Kent Robertson inviting you to wake up and smile with me weekday mornings with all oldies all the time. Hi, I'm Dave Jamison inviting you to take your oldies to work. Now, I guarantee to play more of your favorite oldies per hour than any other Auckland radio station. So I hope you'll join me. G'day, I'm Stuart Hunt, and I'll be making your drive home just a little bit more fun. Join me weekday afternoons. Hi, I'm Adam Butler. I'm Carl Moser. Together we'll bring you nighttime music guaranteed to make you feel good. If the day's got you down, we'll get you back up again with the music you love. Together, these people will deliver back-to-back oldies all day, every day. With independent radio news and sport to keep you up to date, lots of features, and above all, good times. So set your oldies button on your car radio and at home to 93.4 FM. Turn it up. Tell your friends. Oldies 93.4 is on the air. And if you're really paying attention, you may have heard some of the same names that launched Magic 91 eight years earlier because Rob Mackay was also involved in the launch of Magic 91. What's sad is that all those radio stations are well and truly gone, and the market has been gobbled up by a couple of big players. Let's take a look at where they are now. Well, Radio Hauraki is still going. It is on FM. It's owned by the NZME Group, and it is a rock station. You can hear Radio Hauraki streaming on internet radio. Magic 91 did not last that long with that format. They did change to a more contemporary top 40 type format. They were eventually gobbled up and they are part of NZME. They now operate 91ZM on that frequency. 89FM had various format changes and name changes over the years. They were ultimately bought by Radio New Zealand's commercial arm, but then they were closed down. Their last brand was 89X, and since 1993, so they lasted just 10 years, they have been broadcasting News Talk ZB on FM, a talk station. I actually worked for another radio station that used the same studio that 89FM had. And the legend is, because there's this kind of elevated platform that you used to sit on where the desk was, the studio desk. The legend was that under that elevated platform, the builders buried a kilo of marijuana to try and be cool. I have no idea whether that is true. 898FM had a really cool classic rock kind of feel, but that didn't last long either. They eventually became Kiwi FM. They got gobbled up by the conglomerates, and ironically enough, 89.8 FM is also a ZM station operated by NZME. And 93.4, well, that's been through various changes. Oldies 93.4 was not a brand that lasted very long. They eventually changed it to Cool 93, and that lasted quite some time. Now it is The Breeze in Auckland, and that is operated by MediaWorks. And we go full circle, because it is MediaWorks that launched this new brand that inspired me to put this little montage together. The brand is called Today FM. Now, there are various stations called Today FM around the place, 
And I actually worked for a radio station called Today FM here in New Zealand. They were the people that had that old 89 FM studio, although they weren't on 89.4 megahertz. They started off on 91.8 and they eventually ended up on 99.8. I loved working for Today FM. It played this unforgettable music format, but the people I worked with were so great on that station. It was a great place to be. And you'd have to sort of lean into the mic and go, you know, Playing more unforgettable music. It was <laughs> it was that sort of stuff. But it was a great station. And now there's a new thing, completely different, called Today FM. And they are doing talk. And it is available on the various services, such as TuneIn, etc. The difficulty they've got, though, is that because there's the station called Today FM in Ireland, which seems to be very popular, if you ask Siri or your soup drinker or whatever to play Today FM, it's typically the Irish one that you get. So you may well have to go hunting for it if you want to hear what this new talk station sounds like. So that was a fun trip for me down memory lane and for New Zealanders listening. Hopefully you enjoyed that and maybe you enjoyed it if you're a radio geek and you just want to hear a few radio launches you may not have heard before. So let's open this up. What are some radio launches that you remember? We might even be able to track them down and play an extract or two. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is my email address. You can call 86460-MOSIN. That number is in the United States. And get in touch. On April the 16th at 2 p.m. North American Eastern Time, blind musicians from across the globe are getting together for an online benefit concert for Ukraine. It's called We're With You. And all money raised goes to the World Blind Union's Unity Fund for Ukraine. To learn more, including how to listen and how to perform at We're With You, visit mushroomfm.com slash with you. That's mushroomfm.com slash with you. Hi, everybody. This is Brandt. And first things first, Jonathan, thank you for this opportunity to demonstrate the usage of Linux for the average standard normal computer user. I know many people will ask, why are you using Linux? Now, the answer is rather simple. I've been a Windows user since 1998, and I have never had a Windows system that hasn't broken on me at least once, twice, maybe three times a year, meaning a complete reinstall required. I've had this particular Linux install for quite a while, and it has never broken on me. But that is besides the point. I will now log into this particular system. B-R-A-N-D-D space blank password. And now give my password. Linux 5.16.11 last login. Satma 12.13.844.0200.2022 on slash f slash tty1. No mail. Steady movement is more important than speed. Much of the time. So long as there is a regular progression of stimuli to get your mental hooks into, there is room for lateral movement. Once this begins, its rate is a matter of discretion. Torwin, Prince of Amber, Brandt at Darkstar, Dollar. Apologies for the speech. Unfortunately... We do not really have good quality synthesists or synthesized speech on the TTY, especially the terminal. But uh, I personally prefer it this way anyway, since I am legally deafblind and most speech synthesis do give me headaches. But anyway, this is not where we will be operating mostly anyhow. 
the normal user will stick to the desktop or to a desktop environment. And I shall now open one by typing start X. S-D-A-R-T-S. And this command will start the X11 server, which is what we use as a display manager. So I'll open it up. Now that is an error I have never bothered to fix because it really doesn't do any harm. And you heard my vocalized voice say screen reader on. And that would be Orca booting or starting up. And going to the desktop is not Windows key plus D as it is on a standard Windows machine. It is Alt Control D. Desktop icon view. And we are now on a desktop. You will be normally used to pressing the Windows key to get into your menus. Where you find your applications and stuff. Not this time. We'll be using Alt F1. Applications menu. And it said applications menu. In fact, there are three menus here. We have the applications menu. Places menu. The places menu. System menu. And your system menu. Well, we will not be playing with the system menu this time. We will be going to the applications menu. Applications menu. The most important things for most people, normal computer users anyway, would be email as well as web browsing. I've got a couple options for you. Mail, I personally prefer on the console, but that is my preference. Most people won't, so I will be showing you Mozilla Thunderbird. Accessories menu. I press the down arrow to get into the applications menu, and I press I for internet. Internet menu. SSH server browser. Internet menu. SSH server browser. Don't worry about that. That is not relevant at this point. So we're going to press the letter T. Telegram. And yes, we do have a good Telegram client. Telegram desktop. And there's another one. And then we have Thunderbird. Thunderbird. And we'll open it the standard, generally accepted way by pressing enter. Desktop, icon view, applications menu, menu, inbox front, dot at gmail.com, what's in the Thunderbird frame, about blank, blank. And now I will obviously not be showing you my emails because I don't know what's in there at the moment. I haven't checked my mail in a day or so. But to get to my mail, I'll be pressing Shift F6. Table with 104 rows, 8 columns. And obviously I don't want my mail read, so I will not do that. Sending mail is the same way as you would in any other mail client, whether it be, well, mostly Windows, or Apple Mail for that matter, except Apple Mail is Command N on any other client, including Thunderbird for Windows and Linux. It is Control N. Right, open bracket, no subject, close bracket, Thunderbird frame, to entry. I just opened a blank email, which I will not fill out. Obviously not, because I don't have any reason to do Inbox so at this time. Close it down. Standard keystroke supply. Shift F10 to get into your context menu. Control R to reply to messages. I cannot, however, recall what the keystroke is to forward a message on this. Don't think it's Control F, but that doesn't matter because you can still do it through the context menu. As I said, Shift plus F10 will open the context menu like so. Has attachment custom. Why am I not in the context menu? Oh, that's why. Menu. There you go. Open message in new tab. Open message in new window. Open message in conversation. 
Reply to sender only. Reply to all. Reply to list. Forward. And as you can see, the standard Table. mail context menu stuff is around. Now, how do we close this? You would think Auto 4, and in many cases, you would be correct, including in this one. Desktop, icon view. But Control plus Q would also do the job. That would be the standard Linux way to close a piece of software. Now, for web browser, I personally prefer Google Chrome because I need it for work. Applications menu. Accessories menu. And once again, Internet menu. SSH server browser. Internet menu. SSH server browser. And I press the letter G. Google Chrome. And there we have Google Chrome. Desktop. Icon view. Applications menu. Menu. New tab. Google Chrome frame. Alert to store pages. Question mark. And I will not do anything here. Just proving a point. This is very standard, very normal. What you would be used to on a Windows machine now. Computer icon. Okay, I did not have a dead orca, which sometimes happen, but not very often, so I'm not even going to mention that. Now, for Office software, we have a Office suite called LibreOffice, L-I-B-R-E-O-F-F-I-C-E, also available for both Windows and Mac OS. I personally like LibreOffice more than I do Microsoft Office, but that is just my personal preference, and I'll show you in a moment why. Applications menu. We have the Applications menu again. Accessories menu. Press down arrow, and I press O for Office. Office menu. Actual document viewer. Office menu. Actual document viewer. And don't worry about that. Document viewer. FB Reader. LibreOffice 6.4. LibreOffice 6.4. I can go in there, and I can do what I need to do, or I can go down. LibreOffice 6.4 base. And this one happens to be database client. This is LibreOffice version 6.4 base, it's what it's called. And that is the equivalent to Microsoft Access. LibreOffice 6.4 calc. That is just spreadsheet software, LibreOffice 6.4 calc. LibreOffice 6.4 draw. Draw is something I'm not sure if Microsoft have a version of, honestly. It is exactly what it says. It's a program for drawing stuff. Not very useful to you and me as blind individuals, but still there. LibreOffice 6.4 Impress. This is Impress, as you, as you heard. That is the LibreOffice equivalent to PowerPoint. Quite accessible. I don't particularly use PowerPoint or presentation software such as PowerPoint, so... My experience is rather limited. I will not dare comment on this. LibreOffice 6.4 Math. This is LibreOffice 6.4 Math. I do not know if Microsoft Office has an equivalent to LibreOffice Math, but I know the spreadsheet software is LibreOffice Calc. Now we have... LibreOffice 6.4 Writer. LibreOffice 6.4 Writer. This is the equivalent to Microsoft Word, which is pretty good for a piece of software that you're not paying for. Menu. Opening that quickly. Untitled one LibreOffice writer frame. Blank. There we go. It's open. Fine. Now, this doesn't have the, quote, ribbon menus. As you can tell, it's standard menus. 
which you open by actually hitting Alt F. File menu, new menu. Standard menu. Open remote dot dot dot. Recent documents menu. Open remote dot dot. Open dot new exit Libra. Digital signatures menu. Etc. and so on and so forth. Now. Exit new. This is why I do not particularly like Microsoft Office because the ribbons confuse the heck out of me. I really can't get a handle on those, but probably not your problem. Now, I just closed. We've got file, edit, standard menu. Oh, come on. Why my hands File menu, being new menu, Take edit menu, undo view menu, normal selected radio menu item. That's view. Insert menu, page break control plus return. Standard. Format menu, text menu. Bojack styles menu, text body not selected radio menu item control plus zero. Table menu, insert table dot 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 control plus F12. Form menu, design mode check menu item checked. Tools menu, spinning dot 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 F7. Window menu, new window. Help menu, Libra offers help F1. Now this is basically what Word should have looked like, in my humble opinion. Let's close this down. Alert warning. Save changes to document untitled. Cancel push button. Don't save push button. And I press don't save. And I should be back home icon. on my desktop, which I am. Now I'll be closing my desktop down. And that is basically what you would use as a standard computer user on a Linux desktop. In other words, nothing really monumentally different from what you're doing now, I suppose. In fact, it is a lot better, I suppose, than using Windows in a couple of ways. One, you don't pay for it. Two, you can use your old hardware for many, many more years than you can on Windows. I mean, you cannot upgrade a PC that is five years old to Windows 11. I can install the latest version of almost any distribution on a 64-bit computer from 10 years ago. This particular Huawei MateBook is not 10 years old, obviously not. Um, I just bought it last year, so... It runs the latest version of almost any distribution a lot better than a 10-year-old computer would, but still, the point stands. Also, the fact that it's most all of it free and open source software, and a lot of people can have eyeballs on the code, is, in my very humble opinion, a very good thing, because we don't get crap slipped into your software that you don't desire. We also don't have as much malware and other undesirable software for Linux. Why? Because we don't download stuff from the internet. Meaning, I don't go to a website and download a .exe file to install software. Now, how would I do that? Let's check. I type su because I am not the super, I don't have uh, administration right on this system in this particular account. Thank you. That is the super user, meaning the administrative user. Space roots password. And it said roots password. And I'll give it. Now that's fine. So what I will do, because my particular distribution is slint based on Slackware and Celix, I type slapped git is S L A P D hyphen hyphen G E D space hyphen U 
Now that hyphen U tells the system to update its database. Ace retrieving package data HTTPS. You turned me off. And I just turned off. Speak up, otherwise it will <clears throat> keep talking, and it will keep talking at nauseum until I want to scream. So that's off. And I'm looking at the Braille display, waiting for it to show me the number sign again to show me, hey, you're back on the TTY prompt, which I now am. So I will turn speak up hey, that's better. back on. So I press up arrow once, that'll take me back to the previous command. I press, I clear out the U, U, and I press hyphen. Hyphen. Now you have slapped dash get hyphen hyphen, uh, well with the space between get and the double hyphen. I'll type U P G R A D. Upgrade, and I press return. Space reading package list done. The following packages have been excluded. Mozilla Firefox, Mozilla Thunder. There is nothing to upgrade, but that is basically how you would do it. Everything on your system, including your system itself, gets upgraded all at once, except if you specifically tell the machine not to do that. Now, I have a couple pieces of software. I have Google Chrome, Firefox, and Thunderbird set not to upgrade that route. Now, how would you do that? Meaning, how would I upgrade my Firefox, Chrome, and Thunderbird. Well, I have a little script here that's built into my distribution, Slint, by the way, that is at www.slint.fr, maintained by a very nice gentleman called Didier Speyer, where I would type latest, L-A-T-E-S-T, space, latest, space, Firefox, F-I-R-E-F-O-S, and I press return. Kill that. Otherwise it's going to talk forever and it is now installing the latest version of Firefox, which is always a good thing to do, especially with web browsers and mail clients. I've seen systems that use 10 year old software that runs perfectly fine, except for the web browser. Jonathan, once again, thank you, and I hope you found this educational. I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it, Lawrence,